All right, well, let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd be with us now as we look at your word and that it would be clear to us that the application of it would be clear that we would, that our hearts would be uh, warmed and drawn to worship and to fellowship with you. And please help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is the sixth week of studying God's covenants. Today we're going to talk about the fall and the covenant of grace. And um, we've been in Genesis for like way too many weeks, but it's kind of hard not to be. And then next, well, next week we're, we're going to talk about what's kind of behind the covenant of grace. We'll talk about that. And then we'll start talking about the historical covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and so on. Um, and hopefully spend a week each on all of those. And so we've seen so far that God relates to his creatures by covenant, and that that is, a, that is what God does. Um, he, is, he is the Lord. He is the covenant Lord. And nothing that he does uh, is apart from that. So even in the, the very act of creating, he creates as a covenant Lord. That's what we looked at weeks ago in the first lesson. And so this theme runs all the way through the scriptures. It is the lens that comes out of the scriptures itself that we use to understand the scriptures. And so for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the early chapters of Genesis. As I said, we've seen, we've been talking about God's covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And we've looked at both the, what I've called the general aspects and the focal aspect of God's covenant with Adam. And so you remember the general aspects are these positive commands that continue to to apply to mankind even today. Uh, Adam is to love and lead and provide for his wife. He is to make fruitful love to her and raise up children. He is to faithfully work and to fulfill God's calling in the physical realm. He is to enjoy the blessings that God has freely and generously given to him. He's, he's to enjoy those with love and gratitude. That in and of itself is worship. To enjoy the things that God has made with love and gratitude is worship. And he is to set aside one day in seven for a special day of rest and worship. And so those are, those, those are actually three things that we talked about. Um, fruitful marriage, faithful labor, and rest, the Sabbath. And those are what we call um, creation ordinances, built into creation, built into God's relationship with mankind, applies to everybody, everywhere, all the time, before the fall, okay? But as we saw last week, there's another element to the covenant, and it's, the, it's what we call the focal element, or the focal aspect of God's covenant with Adam. And the focal aspect is the specific duty of Adam. The specific duty of Adam himself in his role as the representative or head of this covenant. And it applies to Adam specifically in his unique role as the covenant head of the whole human race. It's a duty that we cannot perform. Uh, We do not have access to the tree of uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, right? This is a particular command to him 
and it applies specifically to him. And here's what it is from Genesis 2. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now, as we saw last week, <clears throat> the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not some, some kind of evil tree. All right? The fruit was not somehow poisonous. The knowledge of good and evil, as we saw last week, is not a bad thing to have. All right? Remember this? It's not a bad thing to have. It's not wrong. He's not talking about somehow knowledge being evil or the knowledge of good and evil being evil. As we saw last week, from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, knowing good and evil is a prerequisite for maturity. It is what Adam needed to carry out his purpose as a man, made in God's image and likeness, and as a ruler over the physical realm. It's, what, it's actually what Adam needed to ultimately fulfill his role that God had made him to fulfill. And so what's the point of this negative command? Well, this one negative command tests Adam's commitment to the Lord at a fundamental level. Do not do this, not because it's evil, not because it violates my character, not because it's poison. Don't do this. Why? Because I said so. Period. Knowing good and evil is not a bad thing. It's, what, it's, it's necessary for Adam to rule well as a mature man, but God said, not yet, no. Wait till an, until I give it to you. And so in other words, it's a command that tests Adam's commitment to the Lord at, at a fundamental level, right? Adam, will you refrain simply because I said so? Will you live under my absolute authority? Or while you, will you try to be autonomous, right? A rule, a law unto yourself. And you, and you will decide somehow what's best for you. Which will it be? Okay. Yes, Don? I think sometimes it's hard for us to understand the idea of knowing good without being participating. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. It's not a knowing that comes from experience. But again, from from both the Old and New Testaments, it's a mark of godly maturity, knowing good and evil, discerning between good and evil, right? So what this is, is a probationary command. Okay, probationary means for a period of time. And once you get through this period of time, then then the, uh, the terms change. So God would have given, I believe, God would have given mankind eternal life and eternal blessedness and access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that he could rule as a mature man without the possibility of falling away if he had obeyed this one negative command and kept God's covenant. Now, we don't have any idea how long that period of time would have been. We don't know. God doesn't tell us that. But it seems to be clear that that's the, uh, those are the terms. So, did Adam obey? No. And again, we don't know how long this went. The, the, the period of time before his creation and the fall, we don't know. You know, it could have been a week, could have been a day, could have been a thousand years. We just don't know. Who knows? We're not told. So here's what happens next. Genesis 3. 
1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, there's a lot in this uh, beginning of, of Genesis 3. There's a lot here. We're not going to be able to talk about everything here. I'm going to bring out a few points that are, that are important for what we're dealing with in this series, okay, with God's covenants, but there's so much here. We could spend a, 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 a quarter on this passage, really. Let's start with the serpent, all right? The serpent. What's the deal with this? Who or what is this? So what do we, we often assume that this is a literal snake, right? An elongated, legless, carnivorous reptile. Snake. But, and we've just kind of come to think about that and just kind of take that for granted. But actually, I don't think that actually makes sense. The Bible makes it clear, and it's obvious even from this passage, that this serpent is not an ordinary snake, right? How do we know the serpent's not an ordinary snake? Well, he talks. Now, maybe you could say, well, yeah, well, back before the fall, animals talked. I mean, haven't you read C.S. Lewis books and stuff? <laughs> I mean, some people make the, that argument, actually, and seriously make the argument that animals talked before the fall. And it is weird because, look, is there any indication that Eve is like, what just happened? You know? No. No indication at all. This seems very normal to her. Whoever this is, whatever this is, you don't get any indication that this is strange. You're just having a conversation. Yeah, I talk to the snakes all the time. Or whatever this is. Okay. I mean, that obviously doesn't say that, but it, it doesn't say this is strange. The Bible makes it clear that the serpent actually is not an ordinary snake. 2 Corinthians 11.3, the Apostle Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So there's, it, it's called a serpent. He is called a serpent or the serpent. But we know this is not talking about an elongated, uh, legless, carnivorous reptile. Okay. Something else is going on. Revelation 12.9, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, this is not a, a snake. This is another kind of being, right? And so most Christians today 
All right, I mean, that seems obvious. It's not a normal snake. So then we assume, okay, well, it must be a possessed snake. A snake that was possessed by the devil, by Satan. And the devil somehow entered the snake and, and spoke through it. Now that has several problems. Again, not least of them is the fact that Eve was not alarmed that a simple snake was speaking to her. That's weird. Uh, but also, as the book of Revelation here says, look, the serpent, he's called the serpent, but also the great dragon, and also the devil, and also Satan, and he also has a company of angels, right? So this is not just a normal snake. I mean, at the very least, we all have to agree with that. What I believe is this is not, this is a, a creature that the Lord God made, as we know all of these supernatural beings are, that we talked about weeks ago, right? Jesus made them, whether visible or invisible, thrones, principalities, powers, dominions, all those things that Jesus himself made. I believe this is a supernatural entity. I mean, that's, that's clearly what the Bible teaches. This is a supernatural entity, right? Now, the Hebrew word translated serpent in Genesis 3 is nakash. You see that word there written in English? And that word can mean snake, but it's a word that has basically three or four meanings in addition to snake, all right, or serpent. It can mean shining one. It can mean diviner or one who practices divination or one who uh, has contact with uh, basically a divine being who, who gives divine information, essentially. Um, oh, I, I'm, I miswrote this here. This is supposed to be serpent here. So serpent, diviner, or shining one. Those are the, the way Hebrew works um, and the way English works, the way any language works, different words can have different, the same word can have different meanings depending on the context and how it's being used. And so this word, nakash, has built-in ambiguity. It's a triple entendre, all right? And that's how Hebrew often works. Hebrew writers um, seem to delight in making plays on words. This is, this is just... It's very almost entertaining when you start to study Hebrew a little bit. You see that they do this all the time, right? They make plays on words where they use words that sound the same or the same root, and you're supposed to think of different things when you read them. Don, yeah. And so this, that's what I believe is happening here. And so I believe the serpent, here in Genesis 3, here's the point, this nakash, is a luminous, serpentine, supernatural, divine being. All right, how's that? In other words, this is a member of the divine council that I talked to you about weeks ago. This is a supernatural being. This is in the Garden of Eden. It's a creature. Um, Adam and Eve are, are used to having some interaction with these beings. That's why she's not, like, freaked out when this creature starts talking to her. And she has some inclination to believe him and to listen to him. This isn't a snake on the ground. This is a supernatural, luminous, 
serpentine being. Um, by the way, yes. No, I don't know. Obviously, I messed up on this slide. Don't pay any attention to this slide. <laughs> I mean, sure. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. It, not intentionally. This is supposed to be serpent, and this is supposed to be shining one. No, 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 no. It, well, it would be a, a, a name not for Yahweh, but for these divine beings of a lowercase g, right? that we talked about weeks ago. These critters, by the way, these creatures, show up all over the world in, in the, uh, the worship of the pagans, right? We know that they worship them. We know from the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, that when the pagans worship their gods, they're not worshiping the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, and, um, you know, the tooth fairy. We know that. We've seen that from Scripture. So you, you see these kinds of pictures all over the place. This, this one happens to be from Egypt. Okay. Uh, is that an ordinary snake? <laughs> no. I'll get you in a second. This is not an ordinary snake. And these creatures show up all over the worship of the pagans uh, universally around the world. All right. And this is just one example. This is a, a snake god from Egypt. They, they tend to show up around the thrones of um, the pharaohs. All right. Yes. I'm trying to wrap my mind around something, though. If it's not a physical, normal snake, mm-hmm. I'm trying to wrap my mind about the judgment that comes later on in the chapter. Well, stand by. Okay. <laughs> stand by. <clears throat> okay. Um, this is important, all right? As we see what happens here in Genesis 3. So come back to this first part of the, of the chapter. You remember what um, the serpent approaches Eve asks her the questions. Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. She answers. We can talk about the nature of her answer. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. It seems to be mostly right, but sort of wrong. Like, God didn't actually say don't touch it, although we don't know that for sure. That's what she says, right? Um, The serpent then says to the woman, right, after she talks, answers his question, She enters into a conversation with him. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what does the serpent do? What is this? Hmm? Very simply, what is it? It's a lie. It's a lie. It's a flat-out, bold-faced lie. Now, he flatly contradicts the word of God. Why would he do that? Think in terms of the covenant. Why would he do this? What What is the end goal that he has in mind here? Do you think the serpent, 
knows what God commanded Adam and therefore Eve. Do you, do you think he knows what the terms of the covenant are? What are the terms of the covenant? Don't eat of this tree. The day that you eat of it, what? You'll surely die. So what is the serpent trying to accomplish here? He's, he's, he, yeah, he is attempting to kill Adam and Eve or to get them killed. I mean, clearly he, he knows that's what God will do. All right? He, he knows he's no dummy. He knows exactly who Yahweh is. He's well aware of God's covenant with Adam and the terms and stipulations and the penalties. Satan wants to kill Adam and Eve. But he doesn't have the audacity or the authority to do it himself. And so he uses the certain penalties of God's covenant to ensure the same outcome. I was thinking about this. I was thinking of a similar situation with the second Adam. Right? With Jesus. The Jews want to kill him. Very much so. But they don't have the authority or the audacity to do it themselves. So what do they do? They game the system so that Rome does it for them. I mean, that's the whole point. Right? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, same idea. And so this is what's going on. So remember what Jesus says about Satan. You're speaking to the seed of the serpent, shall we say, right? When he's talking to the Jews, the Pharisees in, in John 8. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is what Satan is. He's a murderer and a liar. He didn't come out and murder them, but this temptation is absolutely an attempt to get them killed, right? And of course, he doesn't just want to kill them and only them. It could be that, that he wants to pollute the whole race of mankind. I think, I think Satan understands covenants. And he understand who, understood who Adam was. And if he can get Adam to rebel then the whole human race falls with him. So he goes after the covenant head, Adam. But, yes? You are the father of, of the devil now. Who is he speaking to? Everybody? He well, he's speaking specifically to the Jews, but yes, I think that applies to everyone who's outside of Christ. And we'll look more at that later. Okay. All right. So he wants to go after Adam, but Satan is a what? He's a sneak. He's not just a snake, he's a sneak. He's a sneaky snake. And uh, so instead of going directly for Adam, he goes for the woman. He goes for Eve. Right? So look at Satan's lies. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So our English translation has Satan saying, God 
knows that in the day you eat of your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see that? The Hebrew reads this. The Hebrew words, word behind these two translations, God, for Elohim knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll be like Elohim, knowing good and evil. We saw a few weeks ago <clears throat> that the word Elohim is used for both the true and living God, for Yahweh, the, the God and Father Almighty, the one who created everything, right? The one true and living God, Yahweh. Sometimes he's referred to as Elohim, all right? Elohim works the same way that the English word God works. Uh, you could talk about God, the God and Father of Jesus Christ, Yahweh, right? You could talk about um, Krishna, which is a Hindu god, right? You could talk about Allah, a god. It's the same English word, right? We, we tend to, as Christians, we designate how we're using that by capitalizing the first G when we, when we know we're talking about the true and living God. If we were talking about Allah, we might use a small g. I think we should. You understand what I'm saying? But it's the same way, okay, languages work this way. So in Hebrew, you have the word Elohim. Elohim is used of Yahweh. It's also used of the gods of the nations. It's used of Baal, okay, Asherah, Molech, same word. Um, it's used of angels, and it's even used of disembodied men, right? Like Samuel, right? Men who have died and gone on to the spirit realm. They don't it cease to exist. They continue to exist as Elohim or as an Elohim, okay? That's what, that's, that word covers all that ground, okay? Uh, inhabitant of the, of the spirit realm, you could say. And so here, I don't believe Satan is telling Eve that if she eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that she will become a self-existent, eternal, omnipotent being. Right? You, God knows in the day that you, your eyes will be opened, you will be like, you will become a self-existent, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, absolute being. Well, that, that doesn't make any sense. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's not what, when, in other words, we, when we translate this, we shouldn't translate it like this, as if these two were the same. They're not. It's being used one way in, in the first part and another way in the second part, but that's the way language works. So, what is he actually saying? What is the temptation that actually seems plausible to her? Well, he's telling her that she will rise up and take her rightful place in Yahweh's divine counsel. Right? God knows, Yahweh knows, that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like the gods. You'll be like me. Knowing good and evil. This is what you were made for, Eve. You know this is what you were made for, Eve. Come on. And so God is holding it back from you? Take it. 
Take your place among us, the gods. Come on, Eve. She's not, the temptation is not you will somehow become a self-existent, uncreated being. That doesn't make any sense, all right? The temptation is you'll be like us. You'll be like, you'll be like one of the gods. Small g. All right? And it's very plausible to her. And we know that, is, in fact, she swallows this lie hook, line, and sinker. Totally swallows it, right? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Notice, when were the eyes of both of them opened? Hmm? When Adam ate. Adam is the covenant head. Then the eyes of both of them were opened because he ate. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So they tried to, something, something happens here. There's a change. Their eyes are opened. They see themselves differently and they're ashamed. And they try to cover themselves. Right. Then verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So this, is, this isn't weird. They know what that sounds like. This is, remember, this is Eden. This is where God comes. This is the place that God made for him to come and hold counsel together with both the invisible and the visible, okay? And he's walking. Who is this, by the way? Who, 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 do they, who are they interacting with here as they're interacting with the Lord? Yeah, I believe it's the Son of God, second person in the Trinity. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Again, they're not stupid, all right? They're smarter than us, and they know there's someone walking in the garden, and they could actually hide behind a tree and not be in direct sight of this someone walking in the garden, okay? They're not talking about the omnipresent, you know, just presence of God. They're talking about it's localized on a person who's walking through the garden. This is Jesus. And so they hide themselves. And then the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now all of those statements are true. We saw this, right? The woman was deceived by the serpent. This is what the New Testament says of her over and over again right? She was deceived. Um, the woman did, did give it to Adam and he ate. This is not a lie. 
He's not making this up. Neither them, this is actually true. This is how it came, went down. But you also see at the same time, uh, Adam, especially here, you know, What was God's question? Have you eaten it? What was his answer? The woman gave it to me. Okay. You know, all of us men know what he's doing. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he has completely failed. And we could talk a lot about that, and we're not going to. We've talked about that many times before, okay? He has completely failed. Now, what comes next is truly amazing. Adam, as the covenant representative of all mankind, has broken the covenant. He did exactly what God commanded him not to do. And he has... And so Adam brings on himself and on all of his people, which at this, at this point is his wife, as he's the representative of all his line, all of his people, at this point it's just her. Adam brings on himself and on his wife and all his children the curse, the judgment of the covenant. Now God could have literally struck him dead right then and there, and that would be the end of it. It would have been completely just in terms of the terms of the covenant for him to do that, right? Adam deserves nothing. He didn't deserve to be created. He didn't deserve to be in fellowship with God. He doesn't deserve any of this. All of this is grace in that sense. But he doesn't get judgment. But what comes next? Well, certainly curses and judgment, but also what? Mercy. And promise. As we'll see, this is the beginning. What happens next? This is the beginning of the covenant of grace. All right? This covenant applies to all human history from this point forward. Everything that happens after this and from here on out happens under the the terms of the covenant of grace. As history moves forward from this crucial moment, it is all driving toward the ultimate consummation of God's purpose and promise that he makes right here. Everything comes out of this. Everything. And his promise is a promise of grace, of redemption, and of mercy. Again, he would have been perfectly justified to end it right here, to end everything right here. But he is, the Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Even when he's executing judgment. And he is executing judgment here. And so God, as he begins the process of dealing with this, he begins with the first offender, Satan, the serpent, the dragon, the the deceiver, the murderer. He deals with him first, and here's what he says. The Lord God said to the serpent, Genesis 3, 14, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman 
And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so on the one hand, God curses the serpent, right? Not just a snake, but Satan himself, all right? And says that he will be debased and degraded and demeaned. He will lick the dust. And this is a common phrase. We even use it today, right? I'm going to make my enemies lick the dust. I mean, maybe you don't actually go around saying that. But we know what it means, right? Lick the dust. This is not describing the um, uh, dietary habits of snakes, Snakes don't actually eat dirt, do they? No, it's a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech, we know that. They don't actually eat dirt. But we talk about that as a, as a, as a, a, a symbol of great debasement and judgment. So he will lick the dust, he will be cast down from the heavens to crawl on his belly on earth. And we see this kind of language in the Old Testament. We don't have time to get into, we're going to look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and we could spend a lot of time, but these are passages talking about, I believe, the fall of, of, of the serpent, the fall of Satan himself, and the judgment, God's judgment on him. One of the things, uh, it says in Isaiah 14, 12, God is speaking, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations. This judgment cast down to the earth. Ezekiel 28. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. This is actually the place where it talks about this creature being in Eden, the garden of God, on the mountain of God, among the sons of God, okay? And this is part of that judgment. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Okay? I cast you to the ground. This is language of judgment, of great, exalted creature, beautiful and glorious, being cast down to the dirt. That's what I think is going on there. And then in the middle of judgment, what? Promise. And I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, this is not talking about why women don't like snakes. Uh, I actually know a lot of women that do like snakes. Uh, Fear of spiders is much more common than fear of snakes, actually. (laughs) This is not, okay, this this isn't what this is about. This isn't about, oh, this is why girls don't like snakes. Right? This is talking about something much bigger than that. God promises that he he himself will establish a perpetual animosity between Satan and the woman and between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. And that's gonna gonna play itself out from this point on throughout the rest of human history. We'll see that. 
We saw it just a minute ago from John 8. Or John 8? Yeah, from John. You are of your father, the devil. Right? Seed of the serpent. This is about the physical and spiritual struggle. It's both. that works its way out all through history, culminating in the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ himself, coming to destroy the devil and his works. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, Jesus, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He came to destroy the devil's works. All of that working itself out in history starts here with this promise. That is the through line of all history from that point forward. A redeemer will come, a champion, a savior. He will save his people from their sins. Even though they broke the covenant and deserve nothing but death. Everything in history runs on those rails. That is what history is about. Everything you can look at through that lens, all right? Then God speaks to the woman. Quickly now. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What is, there's both uh, mercy and judgment here, isn't there? What's the, what's the judgment? Pain. What's the mercy? Childbirth. You see? He didn't just end it. There's going to be a savior that comes from your line. And that all depends on be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is a great mercy. Even in the pain, there is blessing. Same thing with the man. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, we know this was, that's, that's, that was wrong. He acted as if he was under her instead of her head. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So not just the, not just the covenant head, but the realm of the covenant head. Not just the king, but his realm is affected by his sin. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Curse, you see the the judgment? Toil, sweat, hardship, struggle. But what's the blessing? You're going to eat. You still get to eat. You still get to have babies. You still get to eat. Life will, in fact, go on. It'll be hard and sad and painful. But nevertheless, there will still be the sweetness and even joy in the midst of death. Harvest time will come. Babies will be born. This is an incredible mercy and and grace from God. And it goes on. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, 
because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, what had to happen for that to happen? Death. Blood. Okay. Even the covenant of grace is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Blood has to be shed. Ultimately, the blood of the Lamb of God, the Son of God. But even here, someone has to die. And God is the one doing it. And then it ends with this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. How did he become like one of them? And who are the them? I believe it's not just God talking to himself. I don't think that works here. He's talking to his counsel. He's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. How did that happen? Because he ate the fruit. That's just what it says. All right? There's some connection. Physical and spiritual, all of these things are bound together. So yeah, he has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Figure that one out. Something about, as I said, the tree of life itself. If Adam would have continued to have access to the tree and would have been able to eat it, this is what God says. God says he would have lived forever. So part of the judgment is, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword. So here's, these are divine creatures, right? And the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This is judgment. This ensures their death. They can't take and eat of it and live forever. Death now is at work. And death will work itself out. Even in Adam and Eve. Certainly in every, all of their children. But what? Promise, hope, grace, mercy, children, food, life, redemption, ultimate victory. This is where all of this begins. Now next week, we have to see, got to be done. There's something actually going on way behind this. All right? This wasn't plan B, actually. Okay? This wasn't, oh, now what am I going to do? Let's figure something out on God's part. We'll talk about that next week. We've got to be done. Let's pray. Lord, please have mercy on us. Help us to live with joy, even in the midst of death. That you, you continue to be so gracious and kind to us to give us what we do not deserve, what Adam and Eve did not deserve, and even much more. Lord, have mercy. Thank you. Help us to be filled with gratitude to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.